Good morning. This morning's scripture is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. It can be found on page 254 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel. It was reported to David, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and raiding the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, should I launch an attack against these Philistines? The Lord answered David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go at once to Keilah, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. Then David and his men went to Keilah, fought against the Philistines, drove away the, their livestock away, and inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued the inhabitants of Keilah. Eviathar, son of Akilamech, fled to David at Keilah, and he brought the ephod with him. When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. Then Saul summoned all the troops to go to war at Keilah and besieged David and his men. When David learned that Saul was going plotting evil against him, he said to the priest, Abiathar, bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has reliable information that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, he will come down. Then David asked, will the citizens of Keilah hand me and my men over to Saul? They will, the Lord responded. So David and his men, numbering about 600, left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. When it was reported to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he called off the expedition. Then David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horishah when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then, David's, then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David at Horishah and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. And the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horeshah, while Jonathan went home. Some Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibbethah and said, Isn't it true that David is hiding among us in the strongholds of Horeshah and the hill of Keilah, south of Yeshimon? So now, whenever the king wants to come down, let him come down. Ask for us. We will be glad to hand him over to the king. May you be blessed by the Lord, replied Saul, for you have shown concern for me. 
Go and check again. Investigate where he goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he's extremely cunning. Investigate all the places where he hides. Then come back to me with accurate information and I'll go with you. If it turns out he really is in the region, I'll search for him among all the clans of Judah. So they went to Zip ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness near Maon, in the Arabah, south of Yeshimon. And Saul and his men went to look for him. When David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. Saul heard of this and pursued David there. Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of Ayan Gedi. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Question for you. Who is holding you? In whose hand do you entrust yourself? We use that phrase in a lot of different ways. Um, my insurance company uses that uh, phrase. Allstate tells me that because I pay them my premiums every month, that I am in good hands. And I guess what that means is that uh, when the tornado hit our house, they did pay for our new roof. So, okay, um, I'll take it, I guess. If that's what you mean by uh, being in good hands, taking care of it, doing what you say they'll do. There's other usage of, of uh, being in good hands that we use, that you use a metaphor maybe for medical care. So maybe after you're in a hospital stay, you say, I think we're in really good hands. Um, that's probably a bit more literal. There's actual uh, hands involved of the, the surgeon or the nurses uh, jabbing and bandaging and uh, whatnot. So uh, that's another usage of the metaphor of being in good hands. Somebody's taking good care of you. And so this metaphor that we use of being in good hands speaks of trust, of security, of safety. And it turns out that this metaphor is not a new metaphor. It's not a new saying. In fact, 4,000 years ago, when uh, the time of David was happening, they also used the same saying of being in good hands, particularly being in the hand of God. Being in the hand of God spoke of God's power, of his strength and his authority. So if you're in the hand of God in a good way, <laughs> then you are safe. You are secure. Here's a few psalms that, uh, that use that same kind of uh, figure of speech. Psalm 1012 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. So psalmist is asking God to use his hand to uh, save the afflicted. His power is needed. Or 17.7 says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So God's hand is a place of refuge from adversaries. And then in 31.15, My time is in your hand. 
Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. So under the power of the hand of the enemies, the psalmist seeks refuge and safety in God's hand instead. So the question remains for us this morning, right? In whose hand do you entrust yourself? The main point of today's sermon is entrust yourself to God's mighty hand. Entrust yourself to God's mighty hand. We'll look at chapter 23 first, looking at the main point there being entrust yourself to God's hand, and then we'll look to chapter 24 as well, and we'll read that as we go. So first, let's look at chapter 23. Entrust yourself to God's mighty hand. We remember where we're at in our story. David is on the outs with Saul. He's the anointed king, but David's, uh, Saul still sits on the throne, and David has a ragtag bunch of misfits who are following him. And the beginning of our story, there's a report that comes to David that the people of Keilah, this particular Israelite town, are being uh, uh, taken over by the Philistines. The Philistines are coming at the time of the threshing when you've got all the crops in the threshing floor and then feeding it to their animals and taking all the food, leaving Israel to starve, or at least the people of Keilah to starve. And so David hears of this, and unlike Saul, he asks God if he should do something about it. And God says, yes, attack the Philistines at Keilah and drive them away, protect the people of Keilah. But with that, there is a new and added risk that uh, David is taking on if he's going to do that. And it's voiced by his men in verse 3. They say, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? In other words, it's like, hey, we already aren't safe here because Saul's after us. Why would we go and pick a fight with the Philistines and take out uh, any other potential ally and they're right, like this is uh, probably tactically not the smartest move because they are uh, already on the outs with Saul and they'd be picking a fight with the Philistines. But worse than that, under Saul's regime, no good deed goes unpunished. And this is actually putting them in uh, further danger from Saul because what happens? They go, they rescue Kela, and then Saul is like, aha, now I've got him because Keilah is a walled city. And I know that David is there because he just uh, rescued them. And so I am going to lay siege to the city of Keilah where I will trap uh, David and we will, um, we will get him. So David is trapped, but again, he hears that Saul is coming after him. He, he hears that the people of Keilah have given him up and he inquires of the Lord about what he should do. And he escapes before Saul gets there to uh, lay siege to the city. Uh, David is probably not all that 100% surprised that the people of Keilah gave him up, uh, seeing what Saul had just done to the priests and the people of Nob last chapter. So it's probably not all that surprising, but it's still probably disappointing. After David put his neck on the line for them, they didn't return any of that loyalty. But what we see through this is, is that, God, that David relies on God's word. Four times in these uh, uh, 14 verses, David inquires of the Lord and the Lord responds to David. And I think the detail where uh, Abiathar comes with the ephod 
is to explain kind of how that was happening because Abiathar was serving as a priest. He is a mediator between God and David who could speak to God for David and who could speak for uh, speak to David for God. And so with Abiathar as a priest, a mediator, David was able to inquire of the Lord and get answers to some like pressing questions. So we, too, some application here for us, we want to rely on God's word in the way that David does, right? We want to rely fully on his word uh, as we live our lives as Christians. But there is kind of like an immediate kind of head scratcher because I don't know about you, but the last time I asked God if I should attack the Philistines, uh, he didn't give me a verbal answer of yes or no. I don't know if he's done that for you. So God certainly can still speak to us with, uh, with, with that kind of prophetic voice, yet that does not seem to be his ordinary means of leading us as Christians. It doesn't seem to be his ordinary way that he operates, how we operate with him. Certainly, we need to understand that David is an extraordinary character in the Bible, right? He's a very special character in the Bible. Uh, he's even more special than we are, I'm sorry to say. Um, and so we expect God to work in extraordinary ways sometimes with uh, somebody like David in this, in this story. But, so that's kind of the tough news, right? You're not as special as David. But there's good news still in that we have the whole of God's word in the Bible, right? So there's ways in which we are actually more blessed than David by living in this age of, uh, of having a complete scripture before us. Uh, the good news is that we can seek to know God's will through his word, and he reveals it to us. That is a kindness of God that he doesn't have to give us, but he did give us. And oftentimes, we come to God with the question, should I attack the Philistines or not? Or maybe I contextualize it a little bit more, of should I accept this job offer or not? Or should I go to this school or not? Or should I buy this house or not? We, we want to know answers to those questions. And sometimes the way that God tends to work is not so much in telling us yes or no answers to those questions, but they are in ways of saying, hey, become wise through my word. Seek the Lord through his word. And as we grow in sanctification as Christians, what is happening when we're growing in holiness as Christians and growing in sanctification is our heart's concerns become increasingly aligned with God's kingdom concerns. Our heart's concerns increasingly align with God's will. And so as we grow as Christians, we grow in that wisdom. We grow in our ability to understand what to do in situations in our lives. So God's answer to us sometimes when we're asking him those specific kinds of questions is not so much an answer to the immediate question, but the answer is more like, hey, become wise through God's word so that you can grow in holiness in a way it makes it more important than that specific decision. And so we are reminded here early in the sermon, right, to, to, to seek God through his word, both corporately and individually. You seek to read the Bible and understand it and apply it to your lives. 
So that's one of the good news aspects of here, that we've got the whole Bible. But the other thing that is good news for us as Christians, even as we think about this passage so far, is that we have a mediator between us and God. Abiathar was serving as that mediator. We have the mediator of Christ. So for those of us who are in Jesus, we are actually commanded, commanded to do this in Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So again, we're just encouraged here. May we boldly seek God through prayer. May we boldly approach the throne of grace because we have access through our great mediator in Jesus. So in this episode so far, David has done a good job of trusting the Lord by seeking to rely on his word. But he is kind of just mistreated for this. Like he starts uh, by doing a good thing and rescuing Keilah, and then he ends more on the run uh, where Saul almost got him. And so there's a discouragement, I think, here for this, at this point in the story for David. And so the next portion, 15 through 18, is Jonathan coming and encouraging David. So Jonathan is able to find David, even though Saul couldn't. Uh, you see in this passage, there'll be all these little, little moments where you're like, both Saul and David must have had extensive kind of uh, intelligence networks of spies who were informing them of what, the, what was happening with the other, and Jonathan now apparently too. And so Jonathan finds David, and it says that he encouraged him in his faith in God encouraged David in his faith in God. And what did he say to do that? That's in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, Jonathan's saying, don't be afraid for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it's true. So how does, Dave, how does Jonathan encourage David in his discouragement? He does it by reminding David of the promises of God. Specifically, it's this promise that that has to do with the fact that David has been anointed. God has anointed David to become king of Israel. And so with that anointing is a, a promise that he will become king of Israel. And the implication of that is that Saul won't kill him, right? So he's got this promise of God's safety on on David, where it's saying, hey, you're going to be king, stay in God's hand, and you will become king. And Jonathan encouraged David by sharing that uh, promise with him again. But you understand where David is coming from, don't you? Because recall the, the path so far for David of becoming king. It has been a weird, crazy, completely unexpected path right? This has not been your steady ascension to the throne. This has been instead suffering upon suffering, being an outcast, being mistreated, being treated unjustly. That's been David's path so far. And so David needed this encouragement, this reminder of the outstanding promise that applies to him. And so it is with with us as Christians, isn't it? Sometimes The path that we walk as Christians is a weird, twisty, turny path that leaves us feeling discouraged. And what 
do you do to encourage a discouraged Christian? What do you do? How do you encourage a fellow Christian who's discouraged? Well, you need to go and listen and, and talk and, and, and listen sympathetically and hear what is going on in your friend's heart. But you also have to speak. You have to speak God's promises applied to this situation. Speak God's promises applied to your discouraged friend because that's what the Christian wants. The Christian wants, ah, remind me of the things that are true. Remind me of the promises of God applied to me. That's what I want. Friends, when I'm discouraged, brothers and sisters, when I'm discouraged, I want you to do that for me. And when you're discouraged, I want to do that for you. That is part of our living out our church membership together, right? That's part of our encouraging one another in the Lord that we're commanded to do in Scripture. Remind one another of the promises of God. Now, what promises do we share with each other? There, there's a lot. There's a lot from Scripture that we, can, we, could, we could look through and consider all the ways that there are promises, implicit and explicit, applied to us in our current time through Scripture. But there's one that's actually in the passage here that we can think about. See, David has this promise <clears throat> that Jonathan reiterates to him, and that's a promise to keep him physically safe because he's going to make it to the throne. So there's a promise from God implied in that, that he's going to be physically safe to make it to the throne. But there's also a promise there to keep David spiritually safe. In fact, Jonathan being here to encourage David in his faith is God working to uphold David's faith. So God has promised David to uphold both his life and his faith. So when we think about us, where we are at on the other side of the cross before the second coming, where are we? What promises apply to us? Now, the physical safety promise doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to David. We don't have a, 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 that same kind of thing applying to us in a one-to-one -one way. In other words, it wouldn't be helpful for me to come to you in your sickness and say, I'm sure that God will heal you. I, because that's not a promise that God gives us in Scripture. That wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't be standing on the solid rock of Scripture, right? But what I can come to you in your sickness, in your sorrow, in your trials— is to say that God will uphold you spiritually. You are in the mighty hand of the Lord. If you are in Christ, then he will never let you go. Jesus says as much in, in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Listen to Jesus's words of comfort for you. Listen to these. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Encourage one another with promises like these. If you are in Christ, no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand. It's the power of God the Father that is holding you. There is no power in the universe stronger than God's hand. You are safe. No one could snatch David out of God's hand, and no one can snatch you out of God's hand. But let's continue the story because David remains in danger, right? The, 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 the danger has not yet passed for David because he uh, escapes to the area of the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, we're looking at nice verses 19 through 29 now. 
And David escapes to the wilderness area, but there are some Israelites living there, the Ziphites, you would say, I suppose. Um, And the Ziphites rat David out to Saul again. So they go tell Saul. Saul's like, okay, gather all the information you can. You do the reconnaissance work so we can be sure he's really slippery. We want to be sure to get him. And then David hears about that again, and he escapes further into the wilderness. But then Saul comes and, and, and pursues David, and he pursues him, and, and he's about there in, in verse 26. We'll pick it up. It's very dramatic. He says, Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, the place was named the Rock of Separation. Uh, Have you ever uh, played tag when you're the slowest person playing tag? Um, If you're a fast person, you'll have to really work to go with me on this metaphor. But imagine that's true, and if the person who's it is, is coming after you, you, your only bet is to try to get something in between you and that person and dance around that thing, because once you get to the open field, you know you're going to get caught. David is essentially in that scenario, right? As soon as he gets to the open wilderness, to the desert behind him, he's going to get caught. So he's got a, a mountain between he and Saul, but Saul is coming after him. And when you're playing tag, your only hope in that scenario is that the recess bell rings and uh, the game ends before you get caught and you're the winner. Uh, And this amazing thing happens where in God's amazing power, this messenger comes to Saul at just the right moment. Now, if you're David, you're probably saying, that could have happened a few few minutes ago. Like, (laughs) you didn't have to cut it so close. But I think the reason why it cuts so close is to show so powerfully the goodness of God and his sovereign power, right? So think about what had to happen for God to rescue David in this way. What actually had to happen was that God had to work, move, do something in that Philistine ruler's heart to decide to attack Israel at just that time. So that at just that right time, the messenger would make it to Saul and that Saul would then run away. Like what power God shows here The word we use for that kind of theologically would be God's sovereignty. He is sovereign in that he reigns. He is strong and powerful. He reigns supreme and has the power to do what he wants. Nothing is outside of his power. Nothing falls outside the realm of God's control. Essentially, God can do what he wants. He's got the power to be able to do stuff. So God is sovereign in his power. We have to remember that. And This passage highlights God's sovereign power with the repeated word of hand or handed. So used as like a noun or as a verb in this chapter, 23, it's used seven times. And then in the next chapter, in 24, it's used eight more times. This is a huge emphasized word that's talking about God's power. And and you see it's, it's talking about God's power because there's three times when it's used in ways that they think is it, it, they think they're in control, but they're not. So listen to this. So first, the Ziphites think that they are going to hand David over to Saul. 
the citizens of Keilah think that they're going to hand David over to Saul. Saul thinks that God has handed David over to him when he's trapped at Keilah. Yet all of those are mistaken. None of that is reality. In reality, what you see in verse 4 is that God handed the Philistines over to David when he defeated them. Verse 14, God did not hand David over to Saul. And then verse 17, Jonathan reiterates God's promise that Saul will never lay a hand on David. So having seen all of that, here's the question. In whose hand is David? See, the people of Keilah think that they're in David is in their hand. Saul thinks that David's about to be in his hand. But no, David is in God's hand. And that's why, friends, like our only hope, our only hope in life and death is to put ourselves into God's mighty hand. It is his hand where we can safely entrust ourselves. More on that to come. But first, we got to look at chapter 24. We got to pull in the rest of this story. So, chapter 24 could be summarized by this point of saying, Entrust your enemies to God. Entrust your enemies to God. So, let's pick this up. We didn't read this, so we'll keep your uh, suspense going on the edge of your seats. So, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of that cave. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. And they probably weren't yelling. They were probably whispering, look, this is the day that the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. Okay, this is crazy. David is hiding in a random cave in the wilderness, and that's the exact cave that Saul goes into by himself to use the restroom. What are the chances that that happens, right? This is so clearly this act of God's Sovereignty, right? It's what, a, what an amazing twist to the story. God is sovereign. He is powerful. And, and yet, and yet, look at what David does. David's restraint. Look at the end of verse 4. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord... I would never do such a thing to my Lord, to, to Saul, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. So even though God in his strange sovereignty put Saul right into David's hand, David considered it to be wrong and it was indeed, he's right, it was wrong. It would have been wrong for David to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So much so that David uh, repented of cutting off the corner of the robe, which was a symbol of his uh, kingship, right? So, so David takes very seriously the principle, the precepts that God has shown him explicitly. And he didn't let the circumstance that God provided for him 
dictate God's will to him. Instead, he let God's words dictate his will to him and then tried to apply it within the circumstances that he was in. We kind of think about this because as I just said, God is sovereign over all everything. And so he's sovereign over the circumstances in your life. And so there's ways in which we want to think about, okay, when something's happening, what is God trying to do? Like, what are we supposed to do with the circumstances that God has provided for us? What's God up to providentially, sovereignly? What is he doing when he's orchestrating the circumstances in our life? How do we read them? And the answer from this story is very carefully, right? This is just a note of caution to don't let the circumstances try to tell you what God's will is in your situation, but instead, let God's word tell you what his will is in the situation. So never let the circumstances trump what the Bible says. Just like David didn't let the circumstances trump, hey, don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. So when it comes to reading the providence of, of God in our lives, understand that God's lens is wider than ours. So we just need to be very careful very cautious in, in how we assume what God is working in the circumstances that we, were in, that we are in and always hold the Bible as the definitive uh, word of God in our lives. So having been convicted of this, that he shouldn't even have cut the robe, David does something really surprising. He actually confronts Saul in verses 8 through 15. He confronts Saul in a... Uh, in a way to, to, to try to sow peace. Because he, what he does is he, he, he calls down to Saul, gets his attention once he's, I guess, far enough away to, to not like throw a spear at him or something. And then he bows down to Saul and he says, he pleads his case. He says, hey, look, I've got the corner of your robe. Like God put you in my hands and I'm not trying to kill you, Saul. Why are you trying to kill me? <laughs> he, he pleads his case before Saul and asks uh, Saul to, to, see, to stop trying to kill him. It's an amazing moment of self-restraint, of his ability to, to not uh, go after Saul. And I think there's two motivating convictions behind uh, David's ability to do this in this moment, and David's ability to not uh, sin and, and against God in this moment. I think the two concepts are vindication and fear of the Lord. We're going to talk about those two in, in, in turn, all right? So vindication. So listen to how David describes this to Saul in verses 12 through 15. This is David speaking to Saul. He sort of defended himself. I haven't sinned against you. Why are you hunting me down to take my life? And then verse 12, he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who is the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. There is a lot on David's heart at this point. I mean, he has Saul as this enemy who's got him on the run, who is about to catch him in various times and is certainly out to kill him. He's got Saul as this massive enemy. He's got the Philistines as an ongoing enemy. 
And then he's got Keilah, who he rescued and delivered from the hands of the Philistines, who then turned and betrayed him. He's got the Ziphites, who also turned and betrayed him. David has a lot of concerns and, and, and even longings for justice on his heart, right? He's been mistreated in all of these scenarios. He's been uh, sinned against severely in all of these scenarios. And yet he can say to Saul, may the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. See, what, what David is doing is he's entrusting his enemy into the hands of God. The only other option for David is revenge. It's essentially the differences between saying, I want God to vindicate me versus I'm going to take revenge myself. What David does here is essentially he obeys Romans 12, 19, before it was <laughs> ever written. Romans 12, 19, written to Christians, says, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't take revenge yourself. But instead, leave room for God's wrath. In other words, entrust your enemies to God's hand. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what wrongs have been done against you. I don't know what enemies you have, what sins have been committed against you, what atrocities you have endured at the hands of another. But God knows. God knows each one of those sins. And God will right every single one of those wrongs. He will provide justice for every one of those sins committed against you. And there's two ways that that justice can happen. Two means of achieving God's right, good, long-term justice. And that is either going to be that your enemy will pay for his sins himself in hell. God's wrath poured out on him for the ways in which he has disobeyed God and hurt and sinned against you. Or your enemy might be shielded, might be saved, might be forgiven in Jesus. And what happens to that sin against you? Well, actually, all the more, it, it, the, the cost of that sin against you is the life of God's very own son. That on the cross, it was Jesus's death that pays for those sins if your enemy becomes a Christian. And so that's what can enable you, brother and sister, to leave vengeance to God, to entrust your enemy to God, to let him judge justly. That's the only way that you can get to a point where in your heart you can forgive your enemy. We read earlier in the service Psalm 54. Psalm 54 is interesting because it was written after the incident with the Ziphites. So just at the end of 23, right? The Ziphites have betrayed David, and this is what he prays. It sounds really bold, but then you think about the alternative of him taking revenge himself. But this is what he prays. He says, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. God, hear my prayer. Listen to the words of my mouth. For strangers rise up against me, and violent men intend to kill me. They do not let God guide them. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. He will repay my adversaries for their evil because of, their, of your faithfulness. Annihilate them. 
I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, because it is good. For he has rescued me from every trouble, and my eye has looked down on my enemies. If you are struggling to forgive an enemy, then let Psalm 54 be your prayer. Let Psalm 54 help your heart entrust your enemy to the Lord. So that was one one motivating factor, vindication, that God would vindicate him. That was a motivating factor for David. The other is fear of the Lord, fearing God himself. You see, in whose hand is David? Who's got David? In whose hand is David entrusting himself? God's, of course. And David knows, like, what happens if I turn away from God to try to uh, vanquish this enemy, this fear? Then I'm, then I'm jumping out of God's hand. I'm, I'm disobeying him. And so this is a good picture of what it means as a Christian to fear the Lord. It means you understand the goodness of the security of being in Jesus's hand. And when you think about running away from God, trying to jump out of his hand, scorning him and his goodness and his gospel, then you think that is far more frightening than any other thing that I could be afraid of. Because you know the goodness of the shelter that you have in the gospel in Christ. So when tempted, you compare the threats which is more dangerous, the thing you're afraid of or the thought of no longer resting in the hand of God. And when you truly see that, there's no way you'll abandon Christ. There's no way you'll want to jump out of his hand. When you fear God rightly, then you have nothing else to fear. And now as we close, we can look at Saul's response. So how does Saul respond to all of this? We see that in, in 16 through 22. It's interesting. Saul is, is, is temporarily remorseful. He says, oh, David, you could have killed me. You didn't kill me. I'm so amazed. Um, and he has a rare moment of truth-telling, of clarity. Look at verses 20 and 21. David, Saul says to David, Now I know for certain you will be king. And the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. This is a way in which David becomes an unexpected protector. You see what Saul just did? Saul just asked David to protect his family and not cut off his descendants when David is going to sit on the throne. In other words, Saul is acknowledging and realizing, yes, David, you are going to sit on the throne. God is going to give you the, give you the throne of Israel, and I am seeking refuge for my family in you. David is serving as the unexpected protector for Saul's family. What a reversal, right? What a, what a strange reversal of roles here. Saul is seeking refuge in David. And this is how actually these two chapters hold together. Because where did we start? We started with David being the unexpected protector of the people of Keilah, right? It was a kingly thing to do. It's a, what's a king supposed to do is protect the people from the Philistines, from the enemies, of course. Saul didn't do it. But David did. David was Keilah's unexpected protector. 
And so, brothers and sisters, what a sweet thing that that reminds us of Jesus, our unexpected protector, right? How does Jesus protect us? It's surprising. It's, it's very surprising. It's not that he came when he was born, he came in power. It's, it's weird. He came in weakness, even though he has all the power of heaven and earth. He came in weakness. And how does he offer us his protection? He offers us his protection by dying on a cross. You see, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, lived a life that was sinless, actually perfect, before God and man. And he was unjustly tried and unjustly killed by being crucified on a cross. And that unexpected, unexpectedly, that is what can offer us safety and protection. Because you and I are sinners. You and I have not lived up to the way that we are supposed to live before our creator. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so you and I, by birth and by choice, have not obeyed God. And so what we deserve is the same as what our enemies deserve. What we deserve is God's punishment for our sin. To face God's wrath for what we've done. That's what we deserve. And Jesus, as the unexpected protector, what he does for us is take that punishment. He takes that punishment on himself by dying on the cross for our sins. And then he resurrected, he came back to life to give us his righteousness so that for those who are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees not our unrighteous deeds, but he sees Jesus's righteousness. What a gift. What an amazing protection that we have in Jesus. And so, friends, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, then you are not safe from the ultimately scary, ultimately dangerous thing, and that is God's wrath for you on you for your sins. But we are holding out for you today. God is holding out for you today the means of being safe. That is to put yourself in Jesus's hand and say his blood applied to me. Let him take the punishment that I deserve and I will now bow my knee to him as my king. Come to him in faith and repentance and you can have this safety of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is a good thing that we have to be able to entrust ourselves to Jesus. If we are in the hand of Jesus, then we have him protecting us. If God gave Jesus to make peace with us, if he paid that cost, then how can he not, how would he not also give us all things? You are safe in Jesus's hands. You can take great comfort in that. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word.